Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. A childhood inspiration doesn't always lead to an adult dream come true. But for James Gwertzman, an early fascination about the technology behind the art of games and movies was what led him on the path to a career in tech. And where he wound up in his career would probably make a younger James do a double take. Today, James is the general manager for Gaming Cloud at Microsoft, where he builds the best possible cloud platforms for video game developers that allows them to keep creating the worlds that had him transfixed as a kid. On this episode of Future of Tech, James discusses how he got to this dream job, and he explains how technology has made it possible for more kids just like him to get into game creation easier than ever before. Plus, James takes us behind the scenes of the technology that has made gaming the massive industry it is today, including the creation of cloud-based solutions that allow creators to focus more on the creative aspects of game building and worry less about the back-end infrastructure. Enjoy this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs's R&D and Technology Center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs Technology page on LinkedIn. So, hello, James. I'm very happy to have you in a new episode of uh, Future of Tech. Today, we have uh, James Gwertzwan, who is uh, the general manager leading everything related to games within Microsoft. Um, we're going to chat about uh, many interesting topics. This is uh, an episode I was looking for a long, long time. My kids also are uh, waiting to hear what we're going to chat about. So. Uh, I think that um, the first thing that I would like maybe you to to walk us through is kind of um, how did you reach this point and how does someone get into gaming? Sure. So I've I've been fascinated by the intersection of art and technology my whole life. And I remember as a little kid, you know, playing games, but I also was fascinated by special effects in movies. And fascinated, when I would go to a show, I wanted to go behind the scenes and see how they did the lighting and how they did the, the, the stagecraft. And so sort of the technology behind art has always been my, my area of fascination. And I never thought about a career in gaming. You know, all through college, I was a computer science major. I spent a lot of time in theater. I thought I was going to go into film post-graduation. And I ended up actually coming to Microsoft as my first job out of college, focusing on technology. Again, not thinking of gaming. And it wasn't until Microsoft launched the Xbox 
originally, all the way back in 2000, that I, for the first time, started considering maybe gaming could be an actual career, but I knew nothing about games. And the more I started doing my homework, the more I realized gaming is a fascinating field because it combines so many different aspects of, it's a very challenging field and it, and it combines so many different aspects of sort of experience and knowledge to be successful. You, yes, you have computer technology, you have advanced graphics, you also have things like sound design, animation, storytelling, you have physics, you have interactivity, uh, psychology, operant conditioning, you know, human behavior. And increasingly, as games have become free to play and our business models have changed, we're now incorporating economics. And you've got to be doing almost like retail and product management inside your game. And so the field is incredibly broad. And so for someone like myself, who is fascinated by learning new things and who loves bringing lots of different sort of fields together, gaming is is fascinating because it's so broad and because it requires so many other disciplines to be successful. So that's how I came to it, was this sort of realizing this sort of opportunity to bring so many different aspects together into a single field. You know, I've been doing it now for more than 20 years and I've, I've never looked back. I've loved my experience. And most of that time, frankly, has been on the creative side. I actually started my own game studio back in 2000 because I realized I wanted to start making games. I had no experience. No one was going to hire me to make games with no experience. And so I was going to have to hire myself. And so I effectively found a friend and we started a game studio together knowing nothing. And from there, you know, we made some, a lot of mistakes along the way. We, we started also making some successes. And about five years ago, I sort of shifted focus from game creation to actually building this new technology company, PlayFab, to support the creators. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But that's what I've been doing now for the last five or six years. And I'm continuing to do here at Microsoft, which is really focusing on providing cloud technologies to help game creators be more successful and to sort of, you know, further the expansion of gaming into sort of the next, the next, you know, I don't know, windows of growth that I think we're, we're starting to enter now. You know, usually if you go to work and you have like 30 minutes to kill, you can find yourself playing. But for you, it's a, it's a whole day that you're playing around and... Uh... Yeah. It's quite fun. Actually, the irony is I don't have enough time to play games anymore. I should be playing more games. You know, I should be keeping up to date on everything going on. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. it's challenging to find time to game. So how do you find yourself, uh, um, you know, seeing what's new and, and, and learning what's the, uh, the ecosystem is and, and where is it evolving to? Yeah. So that's a good question. I guess a couple things. First of all, I have kids. And, I, and my kids, you know, they don't know this, but they're my full-time research staff, you know, where <laughs> I've got two 17-year-olds and I've got an eight-year-old and they're all avid gamers. And, and I sort of encourage them. I'm always asking them, what are you playing and what's, what's new? And, and I really look to them because, you know, one of the interesting things about gaming in the last few years is this rise of game streamers or influencers, you know, people who basically play games so other people can watch. And I remember on YouTube a few years ago, when I first started seeing the rise of like Minecraft videos of people watching other people playing Minecraft, it felt initially like a, like an aberration, like a weird, like, why is that? And now it's become so commonplace that my, my eight-year-old will, will be like watching people playing games on her iPad on one screen while she's playing her Nintendo Switch on the other, you know? So there's this crazy sense of watching people playing games is now part of the entertainment value. So it's not just playing yourself, it's watching other people play is actually part of the fun which is really interesting. And so I, I definitely use my kids to find out what's hot. One of the things that's neat about gaming is it's a very collaborative field. There's not a lot of sense 
the game creators are competing with each other. There's a, there's a real openness and willingness to share. And so I'm on a number of mailing lists and sort of online forums with other colleagues in the game industry and people are very open about what they're playing and what they, what, what trends they see. And so I also pick up on what's happening just by sort of the general conversation of fellow game creators that I, I hear around me. Interesting. We'll touch more about the, uh, the kids and the, uh, the kids, uh, influence and, you know, the, the, the change in life. Maybe before we start everything, uh, can you give me like, uh, a short history about the gaming industry? Sure. Yeah, I can, I can try to do my best. You know, so gaming started, one of the first games was called Space Wars, which was back in, I want to say the late seventies. And it was a very, very simple game played on dedicated hardware. And it was, it was the first sort of interactive computer experience where the computer was fast enough to do an interactive real-time yeah, experience. And, you know, and then came Pong, which is probably one of the very first ever commercial arcade games. You know, it was a physical console that you put a quarter in and they put it in bars and restaurants and it, it suddenly sort of took off. And that really was the birth of gaming. And so for the while there, it was arcade-based where, you know, it was all, the hardware was so dedicated and so expensive, the only way to do it was by going to an arcade or playing these physical machines. And it was therefore fueled by quarters, you know, putting in money in the slot. 25 cents was, was the price of entry. And so that created a type of game that were very difficult. And you, you, you basically got a certain amount of gameplay for your, for your quarter. And obviously, the better you got, the more gameplay you got before your quarter ran out. But it was a very different kind of gameplay. Then came... Home console, so the Atari and, and and television and other sort of consoles and Nintendo and there's a whole series of those, and that's really what popularized gaming to the masses was the idea to play at home. And once you owned it, the game could change. The game, the, the type of game, became much broader because now it was no longer just about paying twenty five cents. You could now have games that would reward the the, the player, but it was still this notion of games being fixed, you know, consumable content. You bought the game. You played it for some number of hours and eventually you finished it or you were done and you kind of moved on. And that really, for the majority of the last, you know, kind of few decades, gaming has been this packaged good. You buy a game, you play the game, you finish the game, you move on. Even multiplayer games, you know, still eventually got old and because they were not being refreshed or updated. It was a consumable content. So it's no different than a book or a movie, just maybe had this notion of being interactive. But about starting about because 15, 20 years ago, the internet, of course, started to change. Just, just like internet has changed everything. Internet started changing gaming. Because now for the first time, because the internet, you could bring players together into a single game. And so you had this notion of multiplayer games, massive multiplayer games that brought players together from across the internet to play together. And this actually started much earlier on in sort of universities, but it really was, was the kind of games like Ultima Online or EverQuest that sort of popularized this idea of being in a big world with other players. And that... That was fascinating because it, it, it started introducing aspects of community and the idea that the game, that the content of the game was not 100% what the game creators created, that a portion of the content of the game was your interactions with other players, that interacting with other players was part of the experience. And that was important because suddenly these games no longer had 15 hours of gameplay and you were done. These games had thousands of hours of gameplay because there were these ever-growing, expanding worlds that you were in with other players. And that was really important. But, but when those first came out, those games were still largely subscription-based. You pay your money on a subscription basis to play for the game. Starting in Korea, again, about 15, 20 years ago, 
they started doing these multiplayer games where the, the, the beta period, the test period was free. You played for free during the test period. And then what would happen is the game would sort of be ready for launch and they would start charging. And a lot of people would stop playing when that happened. And so I can't remember which game it was that pioneered this, but one of the games said, well, why, why do we stop charging money? Why don't we just keep it free even after the game goes live? Maybe we can find other ways to charge for money. And that became the birth of the free-to-play game where the game was free, but now the game was you're paying for it in other ways. You're paying for it by buying items in the game or buying power-ups or other, other aspects. And that kind of changed everything because once games became free to start, they became much more open because now suddenly the friction, to, you, know, you no longer had to sort of pay a lot of money up front to enter the game, that, that friction was gone. And that combined with at the same time, the rise of mobile gaming and, and mobile phones suddenly created this sort of you know, amazing fertile ground where now suddenly everyone had phones. The phones became widespread. So you had you know, ubiquitous gaming devices in everyone's pockets. And you had this notion of a new business model, the free-to-play model, where you could easily get into games. And that really became the birth of the massive expansion we've seen in gaming in the last few years. And so now it's a games have largely become what we call games as services. So games are no longer these packaged goods where you buy them and you're, you're done. Now games have become services that are continually invested in and expanded on. Game developers increasingly try to bring someone into their game and then keep them there because you know, by adding new content, adding new modes, games are increasingly becoming communities where not just these massive multiplayer games, but all games now have this notion of other players in there with you. Uh, where you're not just playing, but also players themselves are in some ways contributing back to the game. So games like Minecraft, you're not just playing the game, you're also creating content, you're sharing the content with other players. There's this notion that you know, you're, you're in this bigger world together. And so it's really become so much broader than when it started. You have casual games targeted to everyone. You have hyper-casual games that are super easy to play that, that you can learn in a few seconds. And you still have all the way on the other end of the scale Super complicated games that are very involved, have a lot of strategy that can take hours or, you know, hundreds of hours to learn and master uh, that are still very skill-based. And so you have this very wide, wide range. We now have, by our estimates, 3 billion people in the world who play games. So sort of everyone's a gamer now, uh, you know, and they're playing on mobile phones, they're playing on PCs, they're still playing on consoles, they're playing on VR. You know, the, the, the world of gaming has really exploded. And do you, like differentiate between the different games? Is it, uh, you know, something like Candy Crush or is it something like uh, Fortnite or everything is a game? Well, yes, everything is a game. Within the world of gaming, absolutely there are differentiations. You can almost think of it as being a kind of matrix or quadrant, but two kind of two axes, right? Where one axis is premium versus free to play. That's really a business model. Is a game free? where anyone can play for free or as a game premium experience where you're paying money upfront for the game. That's sort of one access. And then the other access, I guess you could say is, is the game sort of single player or is it multiplayer? You know, is it a game you primarily play by yourself or do you primarily play with other players? And if you think of that access, there's, you know, there's, there's big games happening in all four of those quadrants. You know, there are premium games that are single player, primarily where you pay 50 or $60 or $20 to buy the game and you own it and you're playing it by yourself. You've got free games that are single player, like a game of Candy Crush Saga. And yeah, you're competing with other players, but primarily it's a single player experience. It's a casual experience. It's free. You know, there's a business model in there. Then you've got multiplayer games, you know, games like Call of Duty or games like Halo that are, you know, big, expensive premium games that you're playing with other players. And then you've got the free games that are multiplayer, and those are also pretty broad. That's one way to look at it. You know, and there are obviously 
you know, another way to look at it is the size of the team making the game. So you've got small indie developers, which are often two, three, four people, you know, up to maybe 20 people that are small studios making games. And often the production value maybe doesn't necessarily look as high on those or the size of the game is smaller, but they can also be very quirky, very creative. There's an incredible diversity of games being produced by these smaller indie teams. And then you've also still got huge, you know, multi-hundred person teams making huge games where the budgets can be in the hundreds of millions of dollars that are more of your kind of almost like Hollywood releases. You know, you've got these sort of big, you know, tentpole games that are very expensive to produce, but also have typically their franchises. And so they've got maybe more of a guaranteed sort of expected return. I guess one difference between gaming and other industries is that these indie games often can be every bit as big or even every bit as successful as those big multi-hundred million dollar games. You know, every year you see games come out from a relatively small team that sort of come out of nowhere and become the new hot game that everyone is playing. You know, this past summer, we saw several games actually come out that from small teams that suddenly became, you know, immense. Nice. So, so maybe it's a good point for me to, for you maybe to, to explain to us, what does it take to uh, bring a game into life? So the first thing I'll say is it's become so much easier than it was even just, you know, a few years ago. You know, it used to be when I, when I got into gaming back in 2000 and I sort of audaciously started a game studio, back then it was still a real hurdle. You know, you had to master a lot of technologies. It was not easy necessarily to learn how to do this. You had to build a lot of the technology yourself from scratch. And so the barrier to entry as a game creator was fairly high. Nowadays, becoming a game creator has never been easier you know, for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, there are games that are themselves game creation sandboxes. So Roblox, Roblox is, is, is famously in the news right now because Roblox you know, went public last week. And I think the company's worth now upwards of $40 billion or, or something like this. Roblox is fascinating because it's a game. It's a game where in which you, the creator, you, the player, are actually creating games. And then other players can play the games you create inside this environment. And so what's neat about Roblox is they've got more than 100 million players, of which two or three million of those actually create their own experiences. And even my eight-year-old who plays Roblox has experimented with, with Roblox Studio and learning how to make her own games. So the barrier to making a game has come so far down that you can actually make a game inside of another game and have a legitimate experience. Minecraft is similar in the sense that you can create games inside that environment. And, and these are not sort of baby games. I mean, some of the games that are created inside of Roblox are every bit as sophisticated and compelling as some of the you know, big AAA games. The business model is like a platform? Yes, it's a free-to-play game. So inside of Roblox, if you're a game creator in Roblox, when you create a game and publish it, you can charge money, you can actually build a business inside that game and get paid for it. And so, you know, there are professional game creators in Roblox making very good livings, making those games for, for, for use by other, other players. Okay. So yeah, so you can think of Roblox as itself a platform. It's like a console, you know, in the sense that you're, there's a whole thriving ecosystem around that. But outside of that, then, then you've got sort of creating a standalone game. You're building for Xbox or for iPhone or for Android or something. And if those kinds of games you typically have at the heart of it something called a game engine. The game engine is a piece of technology that is a platform that makes it simpler to do all the tasks of making a game. And there are really just two game engines out there today. But making a game engine is nowadays seen as something you don't really need to do. You can build in one of these existing engines. 
And the game engine does a lot of the heavy lifting for you. It takes care of managing all your game assets, you know, all the, the creative elements of the game, they kind of manage them for you. They take care of a lot of the basic programming. They'll often take care of all the graphics and all the audio and all the physics and a lot of the kind of core technology gets managed for you, which frees you as a game creator to really focus on the creative aspects, which is the design. What kind of a game am I creating? What's the gameplay? What's the genre? Creating all the art and all the art assets that are going to be used in that game. You know, figuring out how the controls are going to work and what happens when you push the different controls. You know, every game has at its heart what's called an interactive loop. You know, so, so if you really want to get down to like what's really happening inside of a modern game, the one thing every single game has is this notion of, a, of what's called a game loop, where, you know, many, many times per second, anywhere from typically 30 up to hundreds of times per second, there's this very simple loop. And the loop starts with taking input from a player. So whether I'm, you know, pushing up on a joystick or pushing the space bar on my keyboard or whatever the input is or tapping the screen, you take input from the player, you use that input to change something about the game state. So there's this notion of the game world. And obviously what you, the player, do does affects the game world. So you take the input, you change the game world in some way. You, may, you move your character, you do an action, you you know, make a move on Candy Crush, whatever it is, you're doing something that updates the state of the world. And so every game has some sense of what the world is. It can be simple like Candy Crush, where it's just a game board with, you know, a grid of objects. It can be incredibly complicated, like a, like a multiplayer game where you've got an entire world out there, but nonetheless, you've got some state about that world. Then you then draw for the player the, uh, sort of you, you then kind of update the graphics, which is you know drawing for the player changes to what they're seeing, which reflects any changes to that state. And then you repeat. So that's the loop. Take input, update the world, draw the world or show the world, and then repeat. And that basic loop happens, you know, 30 times per second, 100 times per second. And obviously there are, there's a lot of complexity in there. You know, you also are often, for multiplayer games, as part of updating the world, you're also talking to the other players and you're getting messages from other players about what they're doing. And so updating, it's not just taking input from your own control. Sometimes you're, you're also updating the world by syncing with other players around the world. Sometimes you're also obviously updating the audio and, and, and other things, but it's basically the loop. And what the game engine does is the game engine runs that loop for you and makes it easier so you can focus on the creative aspects. Very interesting. Now, at some point, you started the PlayFab because, because of what? Because I had been at PopCap Games for eight years. I, my, my own background, I'd started a game studio. My first game studio didn't work out. My second studio did. We got bought by a company called PopCap Games. PopCap was then a very was a small but successful studio making a game called Bejeweled. PopCap then began, began a kind of crazy growth and rise. I ended up moving to China in 2008 to open PopCap Asia, which is our, our first kind of game studio outside the US. It was actually also our first foray as a company into free-to-play games. So at PopCap, I had a chance to help figure out what it meant to build free-to-play games, which is great, especially in Asia. And then in 2011, Electronic Arts, one of the biggest game companies in the world, bought PopCap. And I was now an EA employee. And I was an EA employee in China running PopCap, continuing to run PopCap China and PopCap Asia. And I had a chance to watch, though, as EA themselves was transformed by the rise of this free-to-play game and free-to-play games. And one of the things that was really interesting was how hard it is to build and run one of these free-to-play games. Because you're not just building a game anymore. 
Now you also have to run almost like an entire economy in the game. And these games really do require fairly sophisticated backend services to operate these free-to-play games. And right when I joined them, EA had two free-to-play game launches that sort of failed. They had a game called um, The Simpsons Tapped Out, which is a mobile game. It launched, I think, in 2011. It became number one on uh, launch an Apple App Store. And the same day it launched, it hit the number one slot. And the servers, all the backend infrastructure that powered that game couldn't keep up. The, the engineers who built the game hadn't expected how popular it would become. And so the servers couldn't handle the load. And so EA had to sort of embarrassingly take the game off the App Store within four or five hours of launch. And then it wasn't until four or five months later that they relaunched the game, having rebuilt the entire backend infrastructure. That was really a formative moment for me because I saw this huge game studio, billion dollar game company with a game launch and, and they couldn't keep up with their own success. You know, they couldn't scale the game to, to handle the load. And I remember thinking, wow, if EA can't do this, you know, successfully, what hope do small studios have? This is really going to be a problem. There must be a need for solving these kinds of infrastructure problems sort of once and for all. And so that was really my, the, the, the inspiration behind PlayFab is let's go and solve this problem. Let's build a technology company to provide solutions in the cloud on the server side to help game creators focus on, on being creative. You know, just like the game engines, Unity and Unreal had transformed the process of building a game, we were gonna transform the process of operating the game or running the game as a service. And that was, that was the origin of PlayFab. So we started the company, you know, saw a lot of rapid growth and expansion. And then Microsoft bought us three years ago back in 2018. And so now I've been at Microsoft for three years, continuing to run PlayFab. And now, as you mentioned earlier, my role is now expanded. So I'm now looking after all of Microsoft's sort of cloud services for game creators. So I'm basically running the business at Microsoft, not the Xbox business. And I'm not in charge of, you know, selling games to players. I'm in charge of our business selling services and technologies to other game creators to help them be successful. And the mission statement for my team is empower game creators to realize their dreams. You know, that's how we really focus on our job is we're there to help game creators be more successful, be more creative. Now, do you see similar phenomena as elsewhere, not just in Microsoft? Yes, for sure. You know, if you look at Unity, the game engine I talked about, they themselves, if you look at their, you know, they went public last year, they talk about how they're almost becoming a services company. That if you look at, at, at what Unity is doing, Unity is more and more about selling services to other game studios because games have really become services. You know, the, the game is this online, ever-growing, ever-expanding, ever-breathing experience. And so you do need to have underlying back-end technologies that, that run this game. So I'm a bit puzzled because you're saying on one end that uh, it's easier to, to create new games because of the platform and the nature of, uh, you know, all the tools are now more accessible and people can generate. And on the other end, you know, the games that uh, we see lately are like an amazing movies with uh, trillions of uh, artists working on them. And, and it's like uh, a lot of work just to create the worlds that the players are in and uh, the graphics is amazing and, and the depth and the numbers of possibilities is like staggering. So what is it? Is it still, do we still see or will we still see you know, a few individuals that can, can create a, a huge game or uh, is it now a game for uh, the studios? So, you know, the good news is the answer is both. Like the industry is so big now that we, we have both ends covered. You're right. 
a lot of the games that come out now are these huge, you know, it really is like Hollywood, right? You've got your Hollywood movies, which take 300 people to build and they work for three or four years and the budget can be hundreds of millions of dollars to create the game. There's many of those games still being built, right? Those are the big investments. Yeah. But then you have a game like Among Us. So Among Us, if you haven't heard of it, is an online multiplayer game. Came out last summer. A two-person team created Among Us. Really? And I would say, arguably, it was one of the top games of, of the year. You know, Among Us has, I don't want to guess at the number of players, but it must have you know, 30, 40 million players, if not more. And it's, it, it was honestly one of the single biggest hits of last year. Two-person team created that game. Graphics are very simple. The gameplay is frankly kind of based off of the old werewolf game, which is in some cases a card game that people yep. have been playing. Yep. They adopted this into a multiplayer experience that's really compelling. And next you know, every single kid I know is playing that game. And so you do have still the opportunity for two people in a garage to create a game and launch it and and affect, you know, have hundreds of millions of people playing your game. Yeah. So talking about kids, which obviously mine are uh, big fans of Among Us. How do you see the, um, the worlds of kids in today? Because most of the day are, they are playing uh, games. And uh, especially now that, you know, travel is forbidden and they are always uh, with the computer. So do you see it as a bad influence, as a good thing that happened? How do you see that uh, from a different uh, perspective? I mean, obviously, this is, you know, this is obviously a delicate topic, right? I, I think my first thought is, we humans have always played. Play has always been a really important part of how kids especially figure how the world works and sort of their place within it. And back when we were, you know, hunting, gathering societies, our play involved hitting balls with sticks and running around and, you know, a lot of the sort of, you know, playground games you know, make sense in a world that's very physical yeah. and you're learning how to master the physical environment and how to, you know, climb trees and how to survive. And, you know, they're essentially play as a way to learn how to survive. Well, modern life is all online. It's digital. It's, it's electronic. And, you know, the crazy thing is a lot of these games are still just like before kids are learning the skills they need to survive in society. It just moved online, you know, for better, or for worse. And so I actually see a lot of my own kids when they're playing these games with their friends or a game like a Fortnite or a game like Among Us, you know, they're also learning how to collaborate with teammates. They're learning how to go online. You know, a lot of the sort of, you know, older people love to joke about how incredibly facile with technology kids are. And part of it's because they've learned how to play games. Yeah. Games are teaching them a comfort with technology that, that you know, might escape, you know, some of our, our you know, people who are older with and, and not as comfortable. You know, and again, I, I, I watch my own kids you know, using three screens at the same time. They're watching, you know, a YouTube video on one screen and they're playing a game on another. And frankly, they're chatting with a friend on a third. And so it's crazy, but like that is also, frankly, the survival skills they're going to need to be successful, you know, as adults in the workplace. So I do think there's an element of play. Games do teach skills that help you survive. Now, it's also true that games have, they're interactive. And, and because they're interactive, games have opportunities for feedback that can be really compelling. You know, obviously, you know, a well-designed game, you don't want to leave it because it's fun. It's you're getting constantly rewarded, you know, for the actions you're taking. You know, you're getting a constant reward for playing and you're winning matches and it feels good. And so, you know, obviously that's the downside. The downside is, they're, you know, it's more compelling than homework sometimes. It's more compelling than, you know, traditional entertainment. There's a reason why gaming 
is now the number two. It's, it's, it's currently the second biggest form of entertainment behind paid TV. It's bigger than movies. It's bigger than books. It's bigger than, you know, music. Uh, in fact, it's bigger than all three of those added up. And it's about to become the number one biggest form of entertainment sometime in the next year or two. So gaming has become huge. It's replacing, you know, a lot of kids' time is being spent with games now versus other media because it's so compelling. And um, I don't think that's going to change. I do think that, you know, we game creators obviously do need to be re- responsive to that and, and, and think about how we create our games to not take advantage of that, but to, uh, but to be kind of responsible. And I think most game creators are. You know, they see the games they're creating as being fun, but they also recognize that, you know, anything can be over overdone and uh, you need to be aware of that and, and encourage players to take breaks and, and not to, um, to go too deep. But I also think, frankly, at least in my own household, it's, it's still healthy. And, uh, and I encourage my kids to play games because I do think they're learning problem-solving skills, they're learning collaboration skills, they're learning technology skills that ultimately are, are positive. Nice. And, and by the way, of course, it's not just kids. I mean, let's be clear. You know, I think I'm almost 50 now. You know, I grew up playing games. Most of my friends play games. You know, gaming is a form of entertainment now that is right up there alongside books and movies and TV. And it's, it's just, I think, part of the fabric. And, you know, I, I sometimes I sit down to watch a movie. Sometimes I sit down to play a game. To me, these are just different forms of entertainment and they're, they're, they all have a really important place. Cool. Now, going back again to the technology and, uh, angle, if everything is now, you know, pretty much defined, then you have those platforms and, and uh, do we need developers at all or is just designers that are moving? You know, you, you, you've mentioned the, uh, the cycles. So everything is fully automated. And they just need to move the characters from here to there and the rest will be created by the platforms? No, you still need programmers because a game, because games are inherently interactive. So two things define gaming. One is a continual push for new experiences. You know, one of the things that's neat about gaming is the rapid pace of change of this industry. Players, players are constantly seeking new experiences. You know, unlike, you know, traditional linear storytelling, where the form hasn't changed in, you know, decades. And the only thing that matters is sort of the story you're telling, you know, and, and exploring different kinds of stories. In gaming, the medium is continually changing. And a big part of the attraction of gaming is new experiences. Well, new experiences require novelty and require new engineering. You know, I, I, Microsoft released a game last year called Flight Simulator. You know, we've been making flight simulators for, ages. you know, 20 years, 30 years. This was the latest iteration of our flight simulator, but the way we built it was completely different. It, in, in the new flight simulator, you can literally fly around the entire world. The entire world is, is, is there for you to fly around. It's photorealistic. It's incredible. You can go to any city in the world and fly there. You can pick any landmark and fly there. And the way we created that game, we never could have created that game if we had depended on artists handcrafting every polygon and handcrafting every piece of geometry because it's, it's the entire world. It's just too big. The way they created the game was they actually used computers to create the game. They basically used satellite imagery of the whole planet and they used machine learning models and taught them how to take that satellite imagery and turn a 2D top-down satellite imagery and turn that into 3D fully photorealistic geometry. And having trained these models, they basically then simulated the creation process for the whole planet running in the cloud. It was an incredible feat of engineering. And the net result is now you can fly around the entire world and experience it in, in all its glory. And it's amazing. It's a, it's a phenomenal experience. That's an example where engineers 
did a massive amount of innovation on the creation side. And so it was actually, you know, creating tools to build the game that now players can go and play. And of course, there's a lot of work that goes into the game. And every single game has some aspect of custom engineering or custom, you know, programming because the nature of the game is it's interactive. And so you've got to program that somehow. You've got to program in what's going on inside the game. And games can have very different levels of sophistication. You know, some games choose to go very deep on the artificial intelligence and AI. And what makes it fun is just how realistic the game is and how interesting the other players are. Some games go very deep on networking. Innovation is the interactions with other players and the nature of, you know, how good the networking is or how, how smoothly you can play other players. Some games choose to really innovate on the graphics, you know, and, and they're choosing to put their engineering effort to really innovating the look and feel, you know, making these beautiful environments that look ever more realistic. You know, some games ignore that and focus entirely on some sort of new gameplay innovation. Every game has something that they're, they're doing to kind of push the envelope. So in that sense, how did the cloud infrastructure become so important in the ecosystem? So the cloud became important because, so what is a cloud, right? You know, my, my parents always ask me, so what do you do exactly? Like, what is the cloud again? The cloud is just, you know, a convenient term for the fact that you now have, you know, sort of huge numbers of computers in data centers out there that you as a game, as a developer, can harness the power of these of these servers. You don't know, you know, it used to be if you wanted to run a, a server in a data center somewhere, you had to buy it yourself and put it in a rack yourself and pay a rental fee every month to the data center and so on. It's very expensive. What the cloud has done is it's essentially put all that on a rental model where you can basically, you know, essentially purchase computing resources, networking and storage and computing and so on. It's almost like a pay-as-you-go model. And the promise of the cloud is infinite scalability. The promise of the cloud is no matter how much computing power you need, you can just buy it. You know, and if you need, you know, if you need to suddenly double or triple the number of servers you're using, you can just double or triple the number of servers you're using. The, the cloud providers sort of have this idea that you sort of infinite resources are now available to you. And that promise worked out perfectly for the game industry because the thing with games are, they're incredibly unpredictable to hit driven business. You can launch a game and you don't know if your game is going to be a dud and just kind of fall flat and have no players or your game is going to be the next among us and in a matter of days go from no players at all to 30 million players. And so this incredible scaling function has always been challenging for games before the cloud because it meant that you had to basically buy your own servers and rack them. And if you mismatched the expectation, you either were sitting on you know, millions of dollars of computer hardware you didn't need or you didn't have enough servers and your players were angry and being turned away because they couldn't get into your game and they couldn't play it because there was not enough server capacity. And so the cloud, by making this elastic scaling function, meant that you could suddenly, a small studio like, like Among Us, the only reason a two-person team could have a game like Among Us with tens of millions of players is because of the power of the cloud and because they could bring you know, as much computing resources to bear as they needed without having to sort of pre-allocate it. And likewise, a game like the Flight Simulator game the way Flight Simulator it was only possible because of the cloud, because the way that the, that worked is once we built that model that could turn satellite imagery into geometry, that's not a cheap model to run. And so what would happen is every time they ran the model, they would use hundreds or even thousands of, of servers to basically spin up and do the hard work of translating those satellite images into geometry. And then once they're done building a the model, they could kind of turn them all off again and sort of give them back to the cloud. And so that notion of kind of scaling up and scaling down resources on demand makes possible 
these new kinds of experiences. So it's complementary. You see 5G and Edge contributing uh, to this phenomenon? Yeah, so different technologies. So 5G, what 5G is going to do, historically, mobile gaming has been sort of not as sophisticated as console gaming or PC gaming. You know, the kinds of experiences you can have on a PC or a console, you know, connected to an Ethernet jack, you know, or a Wi-Fi in your house on a broadband connection have typically been different experiences in the mobile games, which have typically been simpler. Not always, but like largely. Yeah. What 5G is promising is to make mobile computing, you know, every bit is networked and every bit is as connected as these, these home broadband connections, which means we're going to start to see whole new experiences on mobile devices that are going to be, I think, just as compelling. So that's going to open up the audience. They also are promising things like edge computing. It's making it ever easier to put computing power closer to the devices, which means again, multiplayer experiences and other sort of very highly demanding experiences become easier to build out. And so I think we're also going to see that turn into new innovative experiences that we can't even predict yet. You know, so for example, Pokemon Go came out a couple of years ago. Yep. It was the first ever kind of location-based game that really hit it big. And so for those listeners who don't know Pokemon Go, it is a real-world game where you walk around the real world and you know, you're looking at your phone, so you see a map of the world, and they've essentially put imaginary creatures all over the world. And you have to physically go to places with other players to find Pokemon. And it gets you out in the real world, it gets you out of your office, it gets you out and you know, I remember going to a shopping mall shortly after the game had launched and seeing dozens of people all walking around staring at their phones thinking, oh, wow, they're all playing Pokemon Go, you know, and, and I know why they're here now. It's like we're all in a big secret together. We're all here to play this game. And the game was very clever. It put the creatures in places where people congregate, like parks and malls and things. And so it really was a fascinating experience. I, I really felt part of a bigger community when I played that game. And I think that was only possible because phones had GPS sensors and smartphones had gotten ubiquitous enough to make that kind of game possible. As we see 5G roll out, there will start to become new experiences like that that we can't anticipate yet. And that's going to be very exciting. We talked a lot about, you know, how thrilling is this industry, but do you see like threats or, or things that you are worried about when, when you're speaking about games? Well, I think gaming has historically had, gaming has a reputation and it's not true, but gaming has a reputation for being a young man's sport. You know, this is, this is something that young men play. And it's not true. If you look at the numbers, you know, the majority of gamers, are, you know, are all ages, all genders are represented. But nonetheless, there's a very strong sort of adolescent male core that, you know, is a loud voice. And I think a lot of a lot of the problems we see on the Internet at large, harassment and toxicity and sort of bad behavior you see in gaming as well. You know, a lot of there are there are certain multiplayer games where, you know, if a woman shows up in that game environment or if she, you know, she can get harassed, you know, or, or frankly, not to men. I mean, anyone, you know, who shows up can get harassed by other players, you know, trolls and other, other very yeah. kind of noxious behavior. That's terrible, you know, obviously because people don't feel safe. And if people don't feel safe playing a game, they're not going to play the game and it's going to be, you know, you can have real repercussions for them. So I think that is a problem that we, the gaming industry, are, are, are fighting as, frankly, all of society is trying to fight as well. And so you know, that's, actually, that's actually one of the areas where my team here at Microsoft is investing is how do we create and help communities inside these games be safe spaces? How do we have anti-harassment 
technology? How do we help look for toxicity? How do we help game creators manage their own game community so that they're safe for, for everyone to enjoy? So that is an area, that is an active area that we need to, to focus on. Because they're so immersive, you know, I think, I think the repercussions can be, can be really negative if you, if you don't get that right. That's one area where I think we need to, we need to be very careful. In terms of uh, sheer numbers, do you see growing numbers of uh, women? Yeah, I mean, it really is getting close to 50-50. If you look at the gender numbers now, it's close to 50-50, you know, men and women playing games. And I remember back when I was a pop cap, one of the big stats is that if you just look at sheer numbers, you know, people over the age of 30, you know, are representing a bigger, you know, just by sheer demographics, there are more people over 30 playing games than under 30. Yeah. You know, I think people still think of it as a young kid thing. It's really not for kids. You know, gaming really is a, a truly mass media entertainment. Yeah, they grew with it. So what next? What, where, where are these uh, futures, Liza, ahead of us? I think the whole notion of games as communities is growing. I think there's a couple of things, that, there are a couple of trends I'm, I'm, I'm watching. One trend is games are becoming ever more part of almost like a lifestyle. You know, Fortnite was an example. I think, I think anyone with a kid was, was amazed at how Fortnite kind of swept through over the last couple of years. What's it do with Fortnite is they've been experimenting with using Fortnite as a platform for other non-game experiences. And so one of the things that the creators of Fortnite Epic did is they had a series of concerts. It started with a concert by a, a performer named Marshmallow a couple of years ago. It's almost like a, almost like a rave inside the game. Yeah. And they basically said, all right, you know, if anyone playing the game would log on and suddenly during this period of time, the game kind of was put on pause and you could enjoy a concert. You could watch Marshmallow playing music. And I think 12 million people showed up for that first concert They ran, they ran another concert last April by Travis Scott that had 12.3 million attendees. So 12.3 million people tuned in live at this exact same time to watch Travis Scott perform this concert in the game. And in my mind, that, again, is one of these like watershed moments where we're going to look back and say, wow, that was like the beginning of the metaverse. I mean, that was the beginning of these game technology being used to create these other experiences where we're bringing people together virtually. And so I think, that was, I think that's fascinating. I think we're going to start to see more and more of these game technologies being used for you know virtual experiences or bringing people together you know because it's the same technology the technology to simulate you know players running around you know shooting at each other in a game like fortnite is the exact same technology you need to bring to simulate people walking around together in a you know virtual conference or a virtual you know uh burning man or a virtual you know uh, a festival or some sort i also think This notion that we saw with, with Flight Simulator, where the technology is being used to create the technology, I think we're going to see more of that. We're going to see more and more procedurally generated games where the, where the computer is helping create the content for the, for the players. And I think that is powerful because it also has an answer for how a small team can create big games, you know, where you don't just throw hundreds of artists at it, but you, you know, a small number of players, small number of creators teach the computer, and then the computer helps them create the content. And so that will also open up really fascinating new new creative experiences. To an extent, what happened to the cartoon industry, you know, with all the movies? Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, it, it's the same old story. You know, you know, technology is creating productivity, you know, improvements. Yep. And what you do is, it doesn't mean that fewer people make games. It just means you shift what you do. If you no longer have to spend all your time creating the geometry or the physical environment, you can spend your time focusing on the gameplay or focusing on other aspects of the experience, which is, which is compelling. I also think another area that I'm, I'm actually very interested in is, I think, We're going to start to see, you know, one of the things that the Roblox did is it made it easy to create these game experiences, right? We're kind of separated, you know, the, the player could now create the content. I think you're going to start to see 
the value chain of game creation changing, where I think you're going to start to see more specialists. Like, for example, I could imagine a team creating a massive, highly detailed game world and then encouraging other players to create the games inside that world. You know, like, okay, we'll create the environment. Like, you know, I've said a couple of times now, there's a game called Red Dead Redemption 2 that came out, I think, a year or two ago by Rockstar. And it was an incredible, just such a detailed version of the old Wild West, you know, and their game was built in this, and, and you know, they spent years and years building this beautifully detailed, very complete environment where then, and then they built the game inside of that world, right? But, you know, I remember thinking, why, why stop there? Why not open that world up and let other game creators create games inside that world? And I could imagine where we start to get to a world now where, you know, you've got almost like world building experts to create amazingly detailed worlds that other people then come in and create game experiences on top of. And I think you're going to start to see that notion of, of diversification for, for what games can become. This is uh, indeed fascinating. I think we kind of ran out of time. So before we like uh, say officially, thank you. If there is, you know, someone on earth that never played a game and, and is listening to this uh, podcast and is interesting in, uh, you know, starting his, uh, his first steps, where would you direct him? How should he get engaged? If you were going to start your very own game, I, or for the very first time, I would encourage you to do two things. I would encourage you to take a look at Roblox and think about building your game inside of Roblox because that they, there's so many tutorials and so many videos out there explaining how to do it. That's a great first step. And then I would encourage them to go and look at Unity. Unity also has a whole bunch of online tutorials and videos explaining how to build games. I think Unity is also probably one of the simplest paths to get started. Both of those would be a great way to start. I would also, if, if, if anyone, if any parents are out there asking, hey, my kid wants to get into game creation, I would encourage them to study computer science. I think, you know, the basics of programming are still critical to this. And having a very basic understanding of how to create sort of programming is necessary for, for, for creating these basic game experiences. Even if you're not using a, a sort of real language like C++, there's still scripting or other, other environments necessary. Great. James, it was a pleasure. Thank you for your time. Thank you. It was fun to chat with you. Great. And uh, see you soon, face to face. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin directly on LinkedIn.